how am I supposed to be feeling about all this? North Park has always been my healing place. Is this now a dangerous place? From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, we'll hear about a woman who finds a safe place, but in a land that's under threat. Melody Edwards grew up in this place and has the story. Gail Woodsome is an old friend, and over the years I learned her story in bits and pieces. How back in the early 1980s, she started a successful nonprofit in Washington, D.C. It was for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and she was one of those survivors. And so that was my background, had a very violent, um, horrible, challenging childhood. And I, in fact, started my first nonprofit organization in the early 1980s. It was the first, one of the very first survivor-led organizations serving victims and survivors of child sexual abuse. Around the same time, I became pregnant. And as it turned out, my son had a very rare disease that was never diagnosed. And so he was very ill throughout his entire life and dealt with profound disabilities. And so I was doing both things at once. I was working on this nonprofit organization and, and taking care of this child who was amazing. His name was Tristan, and he, he only lived for six years. I continued with my social activism work, mm -hmm. but about two years after he died, it was as if I came to. Mm -hmm. I was functioning all that time, that kind of numbness and a little bit of disconnect is what gets you through mm -hmm. the early shock and the horror of that grieving. And I started recognizing my level of exhaustion. And it wasn't the work I was doing that exhausted me. It was being, I was very, very much in the public eye. All the battles and was always done, you know, on the six o'clock news or on the front page of the paper or... It was just exhausting, and I was, I was exhausted by all of it, and I knew that I needed a break. I also started to feel as though there might be a possibility that there was something to live for after losing my son. It was just the edges of that, but I also had a clear sense that I didn't feel as though I could do it in the same place where he had lived and died, where all my struggles of my own childhood, all the struggles of be doing public work, all of it, all at the same time, I needed a new venue. So one day, Gail just packed up everything. She piled it into her car and drove away from it all. For months, she just wandered aimlessly, camping all over the U.S. and even up into Canada. Eventually, she stumbled into the Rocky Mountains. And when I came through Colorado, I went to Steamboat Springs and was visiting Dad and thought, oh, this is lovely. And I, and I was, but I was also amazed because I had driven up through Kremling and I thought, wow, I'd never known you could drive 60 miles without a gas station. <laughs> So I was already falling in love and thinking it was great fun, and I thought Steamboat was this wonderful little resort town. And, and so then I was going to head over to Fort Collins. So I came down through North Park. Well, I missed the turn to Fort Collins, which took me into downtown Walden. 
And Walden is just this tiny, not very pretty, but lots of character <laughs> town in the middle of nowhere. And I, it just struck me and I thought, this is it. I think I understand why Gail felt instantly like North Park was her safe place. It's totally enclosed by high mountain peaks. I loved that feeling as a kid twirling around on the playground. North Park isn't like the rest of Colorado, though. There's no ski resort here, no pot shops, no stoplights even. Only about 1,200 hardy souls live here. Gail parked her car and started walking up and down Main Street. She asked anyone she ran into if they knew a place to rent. And I walked into the little gift store in town, and all of a sudden the woman stopped and she said, you know, I think I might. So she calls this person, and I hear this voice on the other yeah. end of the phone, and I hear this cranky voice like, who wants to rent it? Why would they want to do that? Well, you know, we don't plow in the winter. It's two, it's a mile and a half ski in. And I'm thinking, this is sounding better and better all the time. I'd have to ski in a mile and a half. They gave me the first three months rent for free if I agreed to clean it. <laughs> and then they charged me $300 a month to live there. Gail agreed immediately with those conditions and moved her few belongings into an old log cabin, miles into the backcountry. Nine months of the year, she was snowed in. Just to do her laundry or bring home groceries, she had to pile it onto a sled and pull it behind her on skis. And she got to know her landlords, Jean and Sharon Walmsley. So she was the cranky woman who had been on the other end of the phone, and I think her crankiness is exactly what I needed. Uh -huh. we, th we look at life very differently, uh -huh. and I'm a vegetarian, and I was helping them move their cows. But, um, but I also saw how they loved their cows and loved the land. And she would call me up, and she'd say, oh, you better get outside. There's a herd of 300 elk coming through. They're headed your way. And... I mean, the animals saw me more often than I did, but when I did see them, it was like I would literally be skiing within six feet of a cow moose and her calf, and they would just look at me because they knew who I was. I knew every path. I knew every inch of yeah. all of that land. And then after a couple of years, I started realizing I didn't need to be on the paths anymore, and mm. I just could just walk across, yeah. across this yeah. land. And it was... It was, I'd been here maybe about five years or so. I still had my son's ashes. Mm. Um, I hadn't been ready. I didn't yeah. know where I wanted to them. And I finally realized that, that this is where. So this, this is where I wanted to let his ashes go. So I climbed to the top of Arapahoe Ridge and, and let his ashes wow. go. And so it's very much, there's a part of him here. Yeah. Gail lived in the cabin for eight years. But then she fell in love with a woman in nearby Laramie, Wyoming. She figured maybe she was healed enough to leave. And she could always visit the cabin. It would only be 60 miles away. In Laramie, with her new partner, she began rescuing llamas and other barnyard animals. This is about when we became friends. Rescuing llamas filled a void in her life. But just as she was settling into her new ranch life, her relationship fell apart. So I literally, yeah. I was literally booted out and had no place to go and had no home and no money. And so I had 25 llamas that she didn't want. So my first thought was I needed to take care of the animals. 
So it just like there wasn't even a thought. I picked up the phone and called Gene and Sharon. And I, I don't even know what I told them. We, we, have an inter- we all have an interesting relationship with my lesbianism here in North Park. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and they've, I've never hidden any of my girlfriends or friends, or, <laughs> but we don't really talk about it. Yeah. Um, but I just call up. I said, I, I don't have anywhere to go. I've, you know, things have kind of fallen apart. And, and they said, and oh, well, we have land, so bring the animals here. And then and, and I said, and I don't really have any place to live either. And they said, well, we're just going to have to figure out where to put you, but just come on, just get right on down here. I mean, no hesitation. There was no hesitation when I called. Like, I just picked up the phone. I knew to call them. I got the animals down here and let, and they said, well, let's just put them out in this hay field for right now. And to stand there and watch those animals just go galloping across they were really happy. I was in tears. It was it was pretty wonderful. It was a pretty wonderful homecoming. But the log cabin she lived in was already occupied. The only place Jean and Sharon had for her to live this time was a dilapidated single-wide trailer out in the middle of the sagebrush. She kind of looked at me and said, have you been there lately? <laughs> and I said, I've never been there. Yeah. She said, well... He kind of has kind of a junkyard there, <laughs> just to warn you. Nothing could have prepared me. You couldn't see in or out of the windows. There was there was stuff all around the trailer yeah. outside, and there were boxes, you know. And it's, yeah. It was just lots of stuff. But the place grew on her. I call this place Coral Dawn, mm-hmm. and we, I often get Coral Dawns mm-hmm. <laughs> in the east and Coral Sunsets in the west. On really cold days like today, Gail puts in about 16 hours of work taking care of her animals. I mean, what do you think the temperature is out here? It's, uh, actually it's warmed up considerably. It was four below when I got up and it's now, I think it's about 18. I remember walking to school when our truck wouldn't start because it was 50 below zero. North Park is a really harsh place to live. But llamas, they, they don't mind it. I think I'm up to about 30 llamas now that are either geriatric or have come off rescue and are very thin. And so they have to get special supplemental feed. And I have to divide them up according to ones that will share well and ones that won't and so that they're all getting the right amount and right so and then these guys are just always begging for extra <laughs> all told gail has 80 llamas one of them eats a llama cookie out of my hand here you go <laughs> many of these llamas would have died of neglect if it wasn't for gail but just as Gail and the animals were settling into Coral Dawn, an oil drilling rig moved in, right next door. And I had no idea what to expect until that first tower came in, and within a day, suddenly this huge rig was built and was just glaring light out across the entire park, right into my windows and across the whole field. It was just daylight, 24 hours a day, uh, and and just this thumping and clanging noises and 
So they're drilling and then they're also using fluids to, that's the fracking process, water and chemicals to blast through anything that is gonna try to block them from where the oil is. As for Jean and Sharon and her neighbors, they seemed okay with the development. Because here's the thing, poverty has taken over lives in North Park. When I was growing up here, my dad worked at the sawmill until it closed down and we moved away. Then when a small oil boom hit, we moved back. Most of the small family ranches are long gone. So for the few families like mine that still eke out a living in this place, an oil boom comes as great news. Gail says lots of small ranchers got big lease deals worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Jean and Sharon didn't get one of those. I got kind of a kick out of this because the Wadsleys kept coming over and they'd go up and they'd talk with them and they'd stand around, they'd watch and they waited till the whole thing was cleared off and the fencing was up and then they went up to them and said, by the way, you've encroached on our land. (laughs) And got $7,000, which is how I got a a roof on the trailer (laughs) instead of the leaky roof with tires that was on it. Gail thought maybe living in an oil field isn't so bad. I remember them as an adventure. We'd take a camper out to my dad's oil rigs. We hung out in the doghouse and ate lunch with the roughnecks. But I didn't live there. I got to leave the noise and the mud and the danger behind. Gail couldn't. Not even when her health took a terrible turn. A few years ago, I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. And there are all kinds of things happening that make it unsafe to be living in an oil field. So, but why did you stay? Why did you just say, yeah, well, you know. so, so I don't have a lot of options. Um, I, I pay very little for the lease here. This actually is also some of the most fertile land in the entire park. I am surrounded by hay fields. And it's lush, and it's rich, and it's amazing land for grazing. And these animals roam that. And they roam it along with moose and coyotes and antelope and elk come through occasionally. And it's, it's phenomenal. Treatment was extremely difficult for me. Um, I was in a great deal of pain. So my quality of life was virtually non-existent for, for over a year. And I made the decision that that was the end of my medical treatment. It was When I was diagnosed, it was very far advanced, very large tumor. And I made the decision, okay, I'm going to nuke this thing. I'll do whatever I need. I'll take every tool you've got. Let's blast this thing out of my body. But following that, it was very important to me to get back to a quality of life. And so I stopped treatment. So it was over a year that I was going through all of the the really intense treatment. And by the time I was coming toward the end of it with the radiation, then there were more. That's when the really the oil development was starting to really increase. So I was aware of that wasn't making me happy (laughs) to come home and to see all that happening. Well, it felt like all this insanity was happening inside my body as well. But... But it was more my friends and my caregivers who were, it was even more upsetting to them because they were making this connection. There's definitely, I've been told, uh, for people with breast cancer histories, 
being exposed to poor air quality and things, they have a much higher risk of looking at lung cancer and and that kind of thing. And so I started to have people kind of pushing me about, you shouldn't be living in this unhealthy place, which just added to, kind of added to my stress about how am I supposed to be feeling about all this? This is a, North Park has always been my healing place. Is this now a dangerous place? About this time, the energy company began building even more infrastructure around her home. She says the company never asked for her permission to do this stuff because she's not a landowner. She's just a renter. The first time, I think I started to wonder how possible was it going to be for me to survive all this was the day that the electric company drove onto the property with four or five vehicles and started... (laughs) putting out flags along the border of my property. And so I went out to talk with them and they said, well, we're putting up a power line. So this is a power line that stretches across probably my most beautiful view. And one of the guys from the electric company, I was really beside myself because they were also asking, can we just leave our vehicles here overnight while we're working? I said, absolutely not. I was just like, I'm not gonna help you do this. and he said, hey, you know what, I, I know I know what it's like. He says, I live in a place where across the street from me, they suddenly put up a, a development, a housing development. He says, I know what these things feel like. He shared a lot of information with me. So he's the one that said, this is just the beginning. So that was the first warrant. He said, oh, you have no idea. What you're complaining about just to the east of you is nothing compared to what's coming. All this development wasn't helping the economy in North Park, though, the way the town had hoped it would. The oil field workers didn't move to Walden with their families the way my dad did back in the 70s. We went to church on Sundays, took piano lessons, were big supporters of the ice cream parlor slash toy store. So we have some new people who bought the bowling alley. Best food in town is at the bowling alley. (laughs) And um, That's what I tell everybody. No joke, that's right. (laughs) And, And so I went in... Last spring, after they'd gotten through their first winter, and I said, so how are things going? And she said, well, it's been really slow Mm. this winter. And the reason is because the people who usually come for winter tourism, there's no place for them to stay. Mm. So we're, we're not getting ice fishermen. We're not getting snowmobilers. We're not getting cross country skiers. Across North Park, there has just been this little dirt road. It's called the Rand Cutoff. It just takes you to the other side of the park with no power lines on it, just a couple of little old ranches down there. That's where all the gas is, is what I was told. And that the ultimate plan, a couple of ultimate plans, one is that they actually want to put a whole plant in there and start going after what they feel is probably an enormous amount of natural gas and have it be a central location for collecting and processing and distributing gas. And then moving south from there, they've been working very hard to figure out how to get oil out of the mountains. So now they actually even want to move beyond the sagebrush basin and up into the mountains. (laughs) 
I always had a lot of moose crossing. They would live they would live in the willows and in the river bottom near me, and so I would see the moose come across there frequently. I see far fewer moose, and when I do, they're usually booking it there. They're on the run, and, and you can just see them flying through. They're not stopping and browsing along the way. The ways in which the coyote packs work seems to be they're adjusting to around the where the where the oil wells are and and then it's it's changing what they're hunting for there are far fewer rabbits i, I just think that it's starting to happen where there just isn't the same amount of space for these animals and and their way of life is is changing there's a little house a few miles from here that's even closer to the drilling than I am. She's had to start taking things off the walls and off the shelves because the rattling is so bad, things are actually falling. And the first time I heard the grinding and when they're actually fracking, it's, it was horrendous. It felt, I mean, it truly felt invasive in a, in a very personal way. And, and the idea of deserting this land, because it's happening to it. And I just, there's a way in which I feel like I, I just need to be here for her. I, I've often talked to the land and said, why don't you just shrug your shoulders? They'll go away. <laughs> just do a really big shrug, give me a little warning, so, and get rid of them. Um, and it's, uh, but it's hard. I mean, it's I find so it's, myself... It's like you feel like you're staying as a placeholder to say that this land has value. Besides. And as a witness, uh-huh. I mean, I also feel, so I'm this tiny, so right here, this is just about 60 acres here. So it's this tiny piece of land in the middle of this huge oil field. The idea of, even if I could, if someone said, okay, here's the money you need, a place you can go, I would, to, to desert this and to let them get away without a witness remaining here feels somehow wrong. Even if it might mean that your own personal health is at risk. Well, but the health of the land is already, the land is already being destroyed. I don't know what it's doing to my animals. They're drinking this water. They're eating the, the stuff that's growing out of the sky. I don't know what it's doing. No one does. So I just can't, I, I don't think of it that, I mean, we're all in it together. Gail still doesn't know if the fracking chemicals had anything to do with her cancer. I'm a few years out now from the cancer treatment, and I've been doing really well physically. Uh, but it's it's always there, you know. <laughs> There's I have a new pain, or I have a whatever, you know. And I'm sure I'm like any cancer survivor. One is this it? Is this when it comes back? What do I do next? And what does that mean? It's hard for Gail's friends, and that includes me, to understand why she stays. But I'm not the same as Gail. Few people are. My job is to tell the stories of this place and its people, to be a vessel for what they witness. Life with a herd of elderly rescued animals in the middle of a booming oil field might sound crazy to most people. But Gail says doing anything else wouldn't be true to who she is, who she has always been. The land gives you lessons. If you pay attention, it gives you lessons about why you need to stay and why you need to be part of it and you need to protect it and you need to help take care of it. And one of the the immediate ways that I learned that was that we have like two months of growing season here. And there are like 200 different kinds of flowers that bloom in that two months. 
And so it's just this huge lesson about do it while you've got the chance and do it in the most extraordinary way you can possibly do it. It's not for everybody bearing witness to the suffering of one small landscape. But Gail says there's not one day that she regrets making that wrong turn and landing in North Park. Our storyteller was Gail Woodsum. She continues to run several nonprofits. Melody Edwards brought us her story. Her dad retired from the oil field, but, like Gail, refuses to ever move away from North Park. If Gail's story resonated with you, you can help us tell more stories like this. Stories about people and animals and the land we share. Everyone who donates gets a sticker, and if you can give $25, we'll send you a t-shirt. Make your donation at humannaturepodcast.org. I'm Caroline Ballard. Our senior producer is Aaron Jones. Anna Rader is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.